Usually I have a lot more time to get my microphone on. Good morning, everybody. Pleasure to be here with you this morning, as always. You know, I'm going to start today uh, much the same way that Pastor Eric started last week. Um, because, you know, we have this off week between series, and for weeks I'm thinking, what am I going to preach on? What am I going to preach on? What, what am I going to preach on? So at an elders meeting, I asked the elders, I said, what do you think I should preach on? What is it the congregation needs to hear? You know, what, what, what's a good thing right now to preach? And so, thankfully, Joe, you know, always the, the reasonable one in the room, said, let's keep it basic. Why don't you just preach on what it means to believe? I said, you know what? That's the spirit working right there because some of us in this room, I've spoken to some of you very recently about what does it mean to believe? And so today we're going to consider what it means to believe. We're going to use our father Abraham as a, a model for what the Bible says about what it means to believe. And when I say believe, I'm talking about what the Bible says about believing God. This is more than just believing in God. This is believing God. It's about what it means to be, as we would say, to be a believer. What makes a believer a believer? What is the belief that makes a believer a real believer? And as some of you know, you know, I never come to this pulpit lightly. I never come thinking, you know, I got this, but, you know, Today, some circumstances this morning, God showed me how insufficient I actually am for this job. So I want to ask me to go to prayer one more time. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before you today with our Bibles open, with our ears open, with our hearts open, with our minds open. Lord, we want to hear you speak, God. And Lord, I want lives to be changed today, God. I want minds maybe to be changed. I want, Lord, I want you to step in and reveal yourself to all of us here, God, to draw us closer to you, to help us, Lord, to believe even more than we did when we walked in here this morning, God. Help us to believe you in all things, Lord. Work that in us this morning, God. Just work by your spirit. Work through me, God. Take me out of the way and work through me, I pray. And I pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. So, some of you know we have a special language that Christians use. I just call it Christianese because we say things that nobody outside of our circles would have any idea what we're talking about, right? Now, one of the things we talk about a lot as Christians is saving faith. What is saving faith? It's kind of hard to say because that phrase is found nowhere in the Bible. In fact, uh, in the Bible, the concepts of faith and salvation are joined together in surprisingly few places. Let's talk about just a few of them. In Luke 7, we have Jesus eating at the home of a Pharisee, and a woman comes in and lays at his feet and is crying and wiping his feet with her hair and pours out ointment on his feet. And the Pharisee, Jesus having dinner with, thinks to himself, does this guy not know what this woman is? She's a sinner. If... If he knew who she was, he wouldn't let her anywhere near him. And so, of course, Jesus knows what he's thinking, and he, he gives him a uh, lesson about forgiveness. And then he turns to the woman and he says, your faith has saved you. He tells her that her faith had saved her based on nothing more than simply what she did. 
Or how about Ephesians 2? We all know this one, right? This may be the most famous, saved by faith, right? For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one may boast. And then we usually stop there, right? Oh, saved by grace through faith, amen. But Paul didn't stop there. Paul finishes his thought and says, for we are his, God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We're saved by grace, through faith, for works, according to Paul. We have the book of James. I mean, basically, the point of the whole letter is that faith, apart from works, cannot save. In 2 Timothy, Paul says the Old Testament scriptures, he says, are able to make one wise for salvation through faith. And then he says, why? 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Saved by faith for works. In the parable of the sower, Jesus offers a spectrum of people who hear the gospel. And we have two sides of a spectrum. We have the side where the seed falls on the path. And the devil takes the word from his people's hearts that they may not, according to Jesus, they may not believe and be saved. On the other end of a spectrum are those who bear fruit. Now, there are other passages I could point to. But I just want us to realize all over the New Testament, when we read of salvation through faith or belief, works are always part of that. Understand in English, we have two different words. We say faith, we say belief. It's the same in the Greek in your English Bible. Sometimes the word is translated faith, sometimes it's belief. Sometimes the verb is translated believe, sometimes it's have faith. Regardless, the point is that faith or belief are never spoken of without works being somehow part of that salvation that faith or belief results in. Now, I am not saying that works are required for salvation. I'm not, because the Bible says they are not. What I'm saying is that just believing in some indescribable abstract sense or just mere mental assent to, okay, I now believe Jesus rose from the dead. That's not what we call saving faith because the Bible doesn't call it saving faith. Okay? Works do not result in salvation, but salvation always results in works. And the problem as I see it is that we fall into this trap in American Christianity. I've seen it myself. I think I've probably talked about it in this way. We fall into this trap thinking that saved simply means saved from hell. I've been saved. I'm going to heaven. I'm not going to hell. I've been saved from the wrath of God. I've been saved from the just punishment that I deserve. But if that's all our salvation is, then it's not salvation according to the Bible. And that's another word, saved. Saved. We say that a lot. Saved. You know, we were having people over to our house not that long ago, getting to know them a little bit better and talking about our history, my wife and I. And she said, she got to the point in the story where, oh, and then Lee got saved. And the woman said, what does that mean? Doesn't mean much to people outside of our circles, let me tell you. So Janine explained to her what we're talking about. And she goes, oh, you mean when he started following Jesus. And I thought to myself, she may understand the biblical idea of salvation better than a lot of Christians. That is a great explanation 
of what faith is. It's following Jesus. It is a faith that results in something. It is a faith that does. Because we're not just saved uh, by faith from something. That's important, obviously. That's the message we bring to the world, right? They need to be saved from the wrath of God. But we are also saved by faith unto something. And if you read your New Testament, that's the focus. When it talks to believers about their salvation, it talks about what we are saved unto, not just saved from. So let me tell you something. There is only true healing when you move towards something. You can't just move away from something, all right? I'll give you an example. As you know, I, I see a therapist regularly for my anxiety. It can get bad. The worship team saw it this morning, I think. And you know what I've come to realize that he's been telling me from the beginning is that I cannot overcome my anxiety until I move towards understanding why I'm so anxious. Until I move towards unpacking whatever trauma there's been in my life that has gotten me to where I am. Maybe you can't relate. Okay, how about this? If you break your leg, don't go to a doctor that's just going to give you pain medicine to save you from the pain. Right? You want that doctor to set your leg and move towards healing towards permanent salvation from the pain, yes? In the same way, we are not just saved from the wrath of God. We are not just saved from judgment. We aren't just saved from punishment. Hallelujah, I won't go to hell. If you want to be saved from these things just for the sake of avoiding them, you aren't saved from them. You're always going to find yourself right back where you started. We are saved unto Christ. It's our moving towards him that moves us away from the judgment and the wrath of God. We are saved unto new life. It is the fact that we are reborn as something completely new. We are new creatures that saves us from the death the old man deserved. And when the New Testament talks about salvation, it talks about the fact we are saved from the wrath of God, but then spends a lot more ink telling us how we are to be saved and move more and more towards Christ-likeness as we live out this new life God has given us by grace alone. The New Testament is written to believers to instruct believers how to live like they believe. It doesn't tell us to avoid the wrath first and foremost. It, it, Paul assumes all over the place we have that salvation. No, he says, this is what faith does. I'll give you some more Christianese. Maybe you've heard this one. You ever heard of a term, easy believism? Maybe you haven't heard of a term before. This is Christianity that says, hey, save a sinner's prayer and you're saved. Walk the aisle at the invitation and you're saved. Raise the hand and say, you've accepted Jesus and you're saved. Say a prayer that you've committed your life to Christ and you're going to heaven. Good game. We're done with you now. You know, committing your life to Christ isn't a momentary decision. That's not a commitment, is it? A commitment is long term. This commitment to Christ is a lifetime commitment. It's right there in the phrase, commit your life to Christ. I can commit in a moment to do a lot of things. I committed to going back to serving in youth group this year. I did. I committed. I'm not going to go to any of the meetings, though. I committed, though, right? I committed to my wife when we took vows. I was going to love her forever. I'm leaving, babe. But I committed. How do we know when we're really committed? When we're doing what we committed to do. And understand, I'm not saying any of this 
to espouse one doctrinal system over another, okay? Please don't think, oh, here goes Lee on that whole Calvinism thing again. No, you know what? To hell with doctrinal systems. I'm saying this because too many Christians got so accustomed to this idea that somehow my commitment is just to say a prayer and let Christ save me. I'm just accepting what he has to offer and now I'm saved. Is that what the Bible says? We can pull a few verses out of context and prove that if we want to, I guess. We can pull a short passage out of Romans 10 and say, hey, if we simply confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. There you have it. Yeah, but the rest of that chapter and the rest of that book and the rest of the Bible tells us what it means to believe. What does it mean to believe? Again, we're recording. It's on the record. I am not saying we are saved by works. No way. We cannot do anything to earn salvation from the just judgment of God. God did it because we can't do it, right? This is why Jesus had to come. So yes, salvation is not by works. The Bible is so clear on this. But it's also clear that believing isn't simply, I agree with that. That's not saving faith. So how does the Bible describe saving faith? Well, taking the whole of Scripture, the whole history of redemption together, I'm going to take a stab at this. this. This is what I came up with. Ready? Saving faith is believing God enough to live loyal to him. Say that again. Saving faith is believing God enough to live loyal to him. Yes, it's believing who he is. It's believing what he's done. It's believing what he's yet going to do because he kept all the promises he already made, right? Right? But if we just believe it, if we just know it up here, you know what? That's not faith. If we believe it here, we have an emotional reaction to some good songs or maybe a good sermon. It touches our hearts. It's like, wow, that really spoke to me. I'm committing my life to Christ. Well, if your life isn't committed to Christ, you haven't done anything. That isn't faith. The Bible doesn't talk about faith like that anywhere. Unfortunately, we don't get a definition, right? I looked through Acts. I was waiting to find one where Peter says, listen to me, Israel. Here's the definition of saving faith. Couldn't find it. Closest thing we get to a de definition of faith is in our single verse this morning in the book of Hebrews. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Okay, but to understand what the writer is saying here, they want to make Dave read two and a half chapters. To understand what the writer is saying here, we need to go back a little bit here, Okay. The writer talks about Christ's sacrifice. How he says there now needs to be no more offering for sin because Christ is the sacrifice for sin. He tells us to draw near to Christ and to hold fast to our confession. He tells us we cannot go on sinning if Christ is our sacrifice. And then he says this in Hebrews 10. For you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Look what he says. But we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Those who have faith and preserve their souls. And then he offers this explanation of the faith he's talking about. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Faith has two aspects here. 
He says it is the assurance of things hoped for, and it is the conviction of things not seen. Faith is being assured, being confident in what God has said. It is believing God about everything he's told us in his word. Look, it is believing God about a whole lot of stuff we didn't see with our own eyes. It's believing God about a whole lot of stuff that's yet to happen. It's a confidence that his word is true, that what he's revealed to us is, in fact, the truth. But it's more than that. It's a conviction. And this isn't like a conviction like, I strongly believe this. You know what this is? This is talking about presenting enough evidence in a court case to convict somebody. That's the word being used here. This is talking about enough evidence to convince you of something, enough proof of something. Our faith is that evidence. Our faith is the proof of those things we're so assured about based on nothing more than God's word. Now, how is that? How is faith the belief that what God told us is true and at the same time, the proof that what God told us is true? Because that's what the writer of Hebrews is saying here. Faith is believing God and it's proof of what we believe. It's what we believe proven through our belief or our faith. Anybody ever read the book of Hebrews? My favorite book. I'll preach through it one day, I promise you all. You know what chapter 11 is? We all know what chapter 11 is, right? It's the Faith Hall of Fame chapter. The writer of Hebrews says this, and then he spends the rest of a very long chapter giving us examples of what the Old Testament saints believed, right? No. He tells us what they did. He tells us what they did because they had this kind of faith. He tells us how they lived, and in a lot of cases, even how they died because they believed God enough to be loyal to him. And really, that's all God ever required of his people. Loyalty. It's all he asked Adam and Eve for. It's all he asked Cain for. After the whole human race failed, it's all he asked Noah and his sons, including Ham, for. And after Babel, after the human race failed again, he called Abraham, and all he asked for was loyalty. He asked Abraham to live loyal to him. I know we have this idea. You'll, you'll hear people preach about the covenant of grace and how it's these unconditional promises. God gave Abraham unconditional promises. There was nothing he had to do. No, there were conditions to every covenant in the Bible. If I'm just going to do something, I don't need to write up a contract with you to make sure you do something, do I? That's what a covenant is. And before God makes any promises to Abraham, he gives him a command first. Hey, Abraham, leave your life as you know it and come follow me. I mean, does this read like works aren't part of a deal here? Genesis 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Sounds to me like both sides have responsibility here. And then when God even reaffirms it with them as an official covenant, it's not as one-sided as we somehow think it is. Genesis 17, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Abraham's told by God, right off the bat, Abraham, you have a responsibility in this. Abraham, you have a huge responsibility in this. Walk before me. It means to be in God's presence. Walk before me and be blameless. 
The word can be translated perfect or without blemish. Let me ask you a question. Was Abraham perfect? No. All right, so then what made him different? Why is he different from Cain? Why is he different from Ham? Abraham believed God enough to be loyal to him. Genesis 15. And God brought Abraham outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you were able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed Yahweh and he counted it to him as righteousness. God counted Abraham blameless because Abraham believed God. He believed God enough to live loyal to him, knowing that God called him to make a wholesale life change if he wanted to follow him. Knowing that he had to take on a great responsibility if he was going to live in God's presence, Abraham still believed God. That's saving faith. That's what God called Israel to do, isn't it? All those of Abraham's family were part of the covenant. He saves them out of Egypt, preserves them in the wilderness. Were there works that went along with that grace God showed him? You bet. You ever heard of the law? And what does God require of them? Deuteronomy 28, he says, And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth, and all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. This is about responsibility. This is God saying, my salvation is supposed to result in something. It wasn't enough for them just to believe God saved them from Egypt. They all believed that. They were supposed to believe it enough to be loyal to him. And then when they get into the land and God fulfills his promise, we're told in the book of Joshua, not a promise that God made, fell to the ground. God reminds them of his grace. Joshua 24, I'm just going to give you some highlights here. Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel. And Joshua said to all the people, thus says the, the Lord, the God of Israel, I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob. Jacob and his children went down to Egypt, and I sent Moses and Aaron, and I played Egypt with what I did in the midst of it, and afterward I brought you out. I brought you to the land of the Amorites who lived on the other side of the Jordan, and I gave them into your hands, and you took possession of their lands, and I destroyed them before you. You went over the Jordan and came to Jericho, and the leaders of Jericho fought against you, and also the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and I gave them into your hand, and I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out before you. I gave you a land in which you had not labored, and cities that you had not built, and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of the vineyards and olive orchards you did not plant. God says over and over again, I saved, me alone, I did this, I saved, I provided. He says to them, you are saved by grace alone, because that is how God works, brothers and sisters. By grace alone. But that's not the end of the story. Israel had to believe God enough to live loyal to him. Let's continue. Now, therefore, because of all those things that God said, I did, I did, I did. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it's evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose. Make a commitment here. Choose this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods of your fathers, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. And Joshua says, But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. 
Israel was asked to commit their lives to Yahweh God after they were saved by grace. This is about loyalty. Salvation by grace through faith that believes God enough to live loyal to him. Faith that changes what you used to be. Faith that takes responsibility for what you now are. Faith that results in faithfulness to God. And by the way, two chapters later, Israel switches their loyalty. They fail to drive out the pagans along with their gods, and God tells them, that's it, that's going to be your undoing. Good game. But then God makes another covenant. One that we always say again, oh, this is unconditional promises. This is just a gracious covenant. There's nothing required here, but... God makes a covenant with David that is conditional upon perfect obedience. We'll see this when we go through 2 Samuel. It is conditional on the perfect obedience of David's son. That's Christ. You've heard me say, you know, our salvation is not by our works, but it is by works, and it's by the works that Christ worked. But here's the thing, after God makes the covenant... With David, he says, this is going to happen. I'm going to give you a son. He's going to be loyal to me. You are going to sit on the throne forever and ever. And David prays, and now, O oh Lord God, you are God, and your words are true. There's that assurance of things hoped for. And you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant, so it may continue forever before you. For you, O oh Lord God, have spoken. I believe it, God. And with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. Oh, David believes God's promise. He has that faith that is the assurance of things hoped for. And then David obeys. He has the faith that is itself evidence of God's sure promise. And the next three chapters, again, we'll see this. The next three chapters are all about David doing exactly what God commanded Saul to do, commanded Israel to do, but they didn't do it. David drives out the inhabitants of the land. David defeats the Amalekites. Remember them? They're the ones the first generation of Israel failed to take the land. They weren't loyal to God because of the Amalekites. Saul lost the crown because he wasn't loyal to God because of the Amalekites. No, but David believed God. He believed him enough to be loyal to him. I can offer, again, a whole host of examples, but I won't. Just give me the highlights here. You know why? I just want us to see the pattern. I want us to see that God deals with his people the same way in the Old Testament. In fact, from Genesis to Revelation. And here's the pattern. Ready? No one is saved by works. God does the saving. Always. God always expects his people to work because he saved them. They're saved by grace alone, through faith alone through believing God enough to be loyal to him and do the works that the salvation requires they do but didn't require for them to be saved. But there's another part to the pattern. Consider this, please. Those that did not do the works were not saved. God does the saving apart from our works. They're not required for our salvation. But God does the saving for us to work. They are a result of our salvation. They are a necessary result of our salvation. They are the evidence of our faith. They are proof that we believe God enough to be loyal to him. And this is what we find throughout the whole New Testament, not just in Hebrews either. 
We see all about the saving faith that is believing God enough to live loyal to him. And we see it's always God's work first. Again, Ephesians 2. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Not a result of works of it, no one may boast. I don't see how it could be any clearer. This is God's work. You know, in the Old Testament, if, if you look at it, salvation, look it up. You look at the Hebrew word for salvation, is only ever ascribed to Yahweh God. It's never once said to be the result of sacrifices. Never once said to be the result of following the law. Right? Those things were not about getting saved, as we'd say in our Christianese. You know what they were about? Loyalty to God. It is God alone who saved in the Old Testament. It is God alone who saves in the New Testament. We can do nothing to save ourselves from the just and deserved wrath of God for our sin. From the opening chapter of the New Testament, we are told about God's salvation. An angel appears to Joseph and tells about God's saving plan. Matthew 1.21, she, Mary, will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. It's our introduction to Jesus. He will save their people from their sins and praise God that he did. Amen? Amen. Praise God that he came. Praise God that he was born in the likeness of sinful flesh. Praise God that he lived a perfect life that we couldn't live. Praise God that he carried his cross anyway. Praise God that he died in our place and praise God that he rose again to defeat death for us. Amen? Praise God for that. And that is why. As the church, it is the truth of what Christ did. It is the truth of the gospel that God still uses today to save. Like 1 Corinthians 1.21, In the wisdom of God, the world did, and still does, not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Here we see salvation and faith put together again. But who are those who believe? Who are those who are saved by their belief? This is why James asks, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith? If someone says they have that belief, but does not have works, can that faith save him? And the answer is no. It's not saving faith because faith is the conviction. It is the evidence. It is the proof of these things we say we believe. We believe that God alone saves apart from our works. But then our works are the evidence that God saves apart from our works. Let me say that again. God alone saves apart from our works, but our works are the evidence that God saves apart from works. As Paul says in Romans 8, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. I could preach on this passage for eight weeks, but I won't. I just want to point out that we love to lift this out of context too, don't we? It's okay. God works all things for good. But who does God work good for? Those who were called by him, that's his work. Those whom he predestined, that's his work. Those whom he justified, that's his work. But... This is work for those who love God. It's work for those that God knew before time began would conform to the image of Christ. And that's where our loyalty comes in. This is where we need to believe God enough to be loyal to him like Abraham was, like David was. We believe God enough to forsake 
all we ever were. We believe God enough to make a big change in our lives for him. We believe God enough to accept the great and awesome responsibility we have as one saved by faith. We believe God enough for our lives, for our lives to work out what he has prepared for us before he saved us. If we believe, if we have saving faith, we will make that change. So the Bible calls repentance. Repentance isn't just saying, oh yeah, I'm a sinner. You know how we Christians, we love to get into a sin competition, right? Let me tell you what I did before I was saved. Oh, that's nothing. Let me tell you what I did. Uh-uh. Repentance is a commitment to doing something about the fact that we're sinners. That's part of that saving belief. What did Jesus preach from the very beginning? Gospel of Mark. He comes preaching. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. This is the gospel. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent and believe go together. That's the gospel. What did Jesus tell his church to do before he ascended? Luke 24. Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. It's the good news of the forgiveness of sins. That's the saved from part of the gospel, right? But it can't be separated from the saved unto part of the gospel. That is why Jesus says, you need to make a change. You need to repent. But then repentance is in the end. Repentance is only the beginning. Because now we repent and we believe, and now we need to believe God enough to live loyal to him. We need to commit to take on that responsibility that God gives us. Let's talk about the greatest sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount. Do you ever notice how much of it is about what Christ's people do? Be salt, be light. Don't be angry, and if you are, you better leave that gift at the altar, and you better go be reconciled to your brother. Don't lust. Don't retaliate. Love your enemies. And that's the, that's the introduction to the sermon. <laughs> and then Jesus ends that portion by saying, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And you can translate this as perfect. You can translate this as complete. You can even translate it as fulfill your purpose. But look at the responsibility. Either way, Jesus is comparing us to what God does. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Be complete as your heavenly Father is complete. Fulfill your purpose as your heavenly Father has fulfilled his purpose. You can choose the words you want, that's fine, but you can't soften this. You cannot remove the awesome responsibility we have as believers. And this goes with that change of life, that repentance. Saving faith comes with responsibility. Jesus made that very clear. Not just the Sermon on the Mount. Here's a few highlights from Jesus' other sermons. Ready? Matthew 16, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Luke 14, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Matthew 7, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. None of this is about salvation by works. It's about responsibility. 
Not salvation is a result of works. That's not a thing. It's about the, the, the works that are a result of true salvation. And it's about a lifelong commitment. A lifelong commitment to live loyal to the God that saved us. Faith is, is, that is the assurance of things hoped for is a faith that is the evidence of things not seen. Faith will result in works or it's not faith. I beg you all to think differently than so many other Christians you're going to come across. Don't buy into the easy believism. Don't buy into the idea of a momentary commitment. Listen, if you meet somebody and you evangelize them and you lead them to Christ and they pray for salvation, don't tell them, great, you've done something great, now go your way. They haven't done anything yet. Tell them what a great responsibility they have. Tell them that if their faith is genuine, they will see proof of it. Don't think of faith in momentary terms. Oh, it was great. She placed her faith in Christ. He committed his life to Christ. They may have said to Christ, Lord, Lord, but what does that mean? Don't think of faith as some abstract feeling or some spiritual quality that I can defend because you can't objectively and concretely tell me I don't believe. Hey, if that were the case, it would be impossible to ever say faith is assurance of anything or that faith is evidence of anything. Don't think of faith as simple trust. Don't think of faith as accepting certain facts about Jesus to be true. True faith moves beyond that. True faith will reveal itself. Don't think of faith as a get-out-of-hell-free card. Oh, sure, I sin all the time. I'm addicted to this or that sin, but you know what? I place my faith in Jesus, so I'm okay. If that's you, you might not be okay. Don't even think of faith in trite terms of faith will move the mountains that stand in your way and you can do anything. Think of faith as raising the knife over your only son, ready to do whatever God tells you. That's what Abraham did. That was the faith that was the assurance of things hoped for. Hebrews 11 tells us this, by faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. It's saying that Abraham so believed the promise that God made to him. He so believed God when he said his promise of salvation will go through Isaac. He so believed him that even when God said, sacrifice Isaac, Abraham said, God is still going to keep his promise. Because Abraham's faith was the evidence, was the proof that God keeps his promises. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. Abraham believed God enough to be loyal to him when he had no idea what it meant. When he had no idea where it would lead him or what it would mean. Where are we going? I mean, do we know for sure where we're, we're going as a church? Do we know what God has in store for Montclair Community Church? Do you know what God has in store for you 
over the next year or the next decade? No. But faith believes God enough to live loyal to him no matter what. Faith will go when and where God says to go. Faith will do when and what God says to do. Saving faith will run into places we would otherwise avoid at all costs. Saving faith will take a stand when it means danger to us or derision by the world. Faith speaks up when something needs to be said. When the truth is being obscured, faith will speak the truth. Faith will lead us to sacrifice and to carry our cross. Faith will pick up the knife, knowing that no matter what God tells us to do with it, his promise is sure. Because God has kept all his promises, brothers and sisters. He didn't make Abraham sacrifice his son. God sacrificed his own son. He didn't tell you to carry your own cross to be saved. He came and carried it himself. God did it. It's his work. So how can we now, having committed ourselves to him, how can we not take up our cross? How can we not sacrifice anything and everything God calls us to? How can we not turn from our old ways and repent? How can we not make that change? How can we not take our responsibility seriously? More seriously, listen, we, we are so serious about so many things that are going to burn to ashes in the end. What about our responsibility, our commitment to God? How could we not strive in faith to do the works God has prepared for us as a result of our salvation? Because this is what it means to believe. Now, how do we know if it's the kind of faith we have? Well, we talked about comparisons last week, right? Pastor Eric explained how our purpose in God is the antidote to comparison. If we're focused on our common purpose as believers, we're focused on our unique purpose as individuals. We're not going to worry about comparisons. The only comparison Pastor Eric said that we would have to make is to compare ourselves to Christ. To the one who said, be perfect as God is perfect. To the one who said it would take leaving the old us behind to follow him. The one who carried his cross and loved us more than his own life. Are we being conformed to that image? There's only one way to know. I'm going to have to disagree with Pastor Eric. I think there's another comparison we have to make. And it's not comparing ourselves to others. I ask you right now to compare yourself to what you once were. We should ask ourselves often, since I've committed my life to Christ. Have I changed? Am I still what I was? Do I say the same things, do the same things, think the same things, want the same things? Have I made a change? Have I done what God requires of me? Have I truly repented? Have I taken my responsibility as one who was committed to Christ more seriously? than so many other things, even as seriously as so many other things? 
What is the result of my faith? That will prove what kind of faith you have. According to James, James chapter 2, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed, same word, made perfect, fulfilled its purpose by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. You see, we're told that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Justification by faith, right? Salvation by grace alone through faith alone. Faith as the assurance of things hoped for. But that wasn't it. Nothing was complete. The writer of Hebrews says that saving faith didn't fulfill its purpose until Abraham raised that knife up and his faith was active. His faith was then the conviction, the evidence, the proof that God's promises are irrevocable, that he will save to the uttermost those that believe like that. Again, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So as we close, I first want to offer you assurance of the things hoped for. Believe in Jesus Christ. I'm not asking you to say a certain prayer. I'm not asking you to raise your hand. I'm telling you that belief is nothing more than obedience to God. God commands you and everyone to believe the gospel. Whoever believes in his son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the son should not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. See, here's what we need to realize about the gospel and the truth of who Christ is. If you're here and you don't believe it, it's true. It is true anyway. We're going through the book of Acts in our men's study. We were in Acts 5 a few weeks ago where Peter's before the Sanhedrin and he gives that awesome presentation of the gospel. And we were talking about the fact that he's imploring these people to believe, just like we do to others, right? People we love. Maybe people we come across and meet. We ask them, please, please believe the gospel. As if their belief changes anything. It doesn't. You know what? Jesus is God. He is Savior. He is Lord. Believing in his life, death, and resurrection is the only salvation there is. He is our only hope. 
because he is the truth. We belong to Jesus Christ, body and soul, in life and death. We belong to Jesus Christ, whether we believe it or not. So place your faith in the truth. Not popular opinion. Please don't go by common sense. Place your faith in Jesus Christ and be assured of the only hope there is. And if you do, if you're here and you believe in Christ, just like God commands everyone everywhere to repent, it's like God commands everyone everywhere to believe the gospel. God tells you, if I have saved you, you need to commit. You can believe in Christ, but brothers and sisters, we have to believe him. Believe him enough to live loyal to him. It is after we're saved that we can commit our life to Christ. And that's what we need to do. We need to repent. If you're anything like me, that is not a one-time deal, is it? We need to take our responsibility very seriously that we have as those that God has saved, that God has called to bring his salvation to the ends of the earth. We need to see results. Because you may have placed your faith in Christ and you may have truly committed, you may truly be saved, but that's not the end. God is not done with you. That's only the start. And realize that if you believe him enough to be loyal to him, then you are evidence of the truth of God. So I call on us as a church, Montclair Community Church, let's be the proof of who Christ is and what he's done. Let us, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that clings so closely and let us with endurance run the race that is set before us looking to the founder and perfecter of our faith. None other, no other, but Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Gracious God, I thank you. I thank you for your word. I thank you that I was able to deliver that message, God. I thank you that you are who you are. And I thank you that you've given us your word, Lord, that we can know who you are. And Lord, my prayer is that these words, we read a lot of your word today, God. I pray that these words would take root in our hearts, God. And that we would bear fruit 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold, God. That whatever you have in store for us, Lord, we would be ready, willing, God, to follow you, to go when you say go, even though we don't know where we're going, to do what you say to do, even though we can't understand why we're doing it at times. Lord, to be, Lord, make us, help us be the proof of who you are. Let our lives 
what we say, what we do, Lord, even what we think. God, let this be proof to each other and to the world of who you are. The proof that your promises never fail, not a one, Lord, will fall to the ground. Help us, God, to believe you enough to make changes, to take responsibility, to be loyal to you in all things, God. Help us, Lord, by your spirit who works in us to will and to do, Lord, help us to be what you call us to be, God. Help us to look at ourselves very seriously, very soberly, take a long look at ourselves and to see, Lord, if the evidence is there. And for those that are here, God, that don't know you, Lord, even if they've said, Lord, Lord, I pray in your love, in your grace, in your mercy, in your power, God, that you would save them right now, God. That your spirit would make them something they weren't when they walked in here. And that they would follow you. So bless us, God. Bless us. Give us the opportunities to follow, Lord. Give us the courage, Lord, to raise the knife when you tell us to. Give us the trust in you, Lord, the faith in you, the belief in your promises, Lord, to do whatever, Lord, you lead us to do. We praise you. And it's in Jesus' mighty name that we pray. Amen.